All right, well, it is good to see you all this morning. We are continuing on in a message series on Ephesians. A uh, book in the Bible, more specifically, it's a letter that's in the Bible. Uh, and uh, if you're around kind of Bible conversations, anytime someone talks about a book of the Bible, and they're like, who is it written by? Just know that theological nerds debate this endlessly. And there's like two books of the Bible. They're like, no, we really know this person wrote it. And then in the last 50 years, it's like, well, do we? And so now there's debate about everything. But uh, for Ephesians, we are working with uh, the assumption that this is written by Paul. Again, Paul is a person that uh, he's known as the Apostle Paul, but he did not roll with Jesus initially like the rest of the disciples. This is an individual that had a conversion event after the time of Jesus, um, he was actually on his way to persecute these earliest Christians, people that were like saying, who is Jesus? How, how do we follow Jesus? How do we continue seeing his impact on the world and how we live? And so this letter is written to, uh, we, we talked about this before, to the Gentile population in Ephesus. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with Gentile just as a term, it's a term that would have meant nothing to the majority of the world in the first century it only would have meant something to the Jewish population. Jews were the ones that created the word Gentile and were the only ones who used Gentile. And it was a way of describing not us. Everyone who's not us. And what's interesting is that, so Jesus is Jewish. His followers are all Jewish. Jesus speaks to a lot of Jewish communities, but what's somewhat revolutionary about Jesus is he also speaks a lot to non-Jewish communities. And Paul, in this letter, is writing to non-Jewish followers of Jesus, believers of Jesus. Uh, a couple of things to, to kind of talk about and clear up. Christians is a term that we use a lot uh, when we are identifying who's who in these stories. But Christians is not a term that anyone would have been using in the writing of these letters or books. No one in the first century was like, oh, they're Christians. It's a term that came much later uh, as a term of insult, uh, like little Christs. Like, look at all those little Christs running around. Um, and someone in Christian PR heard it and was like, I like it. Let's reclaim it. And I think this is going to synergy, real buzzworthy term. Christians became a thing later. What Paul is describing would have primarily been Jews. They're just Jews who were interested in who Jesus was and how Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah. And so they would have called themselves followers of the way. Um, and they, they really wouldn't have identified themselves as far as we are this, but rather would have said, you're talking about the way or following the way. It would have been the way that you would have known, oh, these are people that identify Christ as this messianic figure. Again, Messiah is just a term of like a leader, a liberator of the Jewish people. So this morning, we are going to be looking at Ephesians 4. Uh, Pastor, my co-pastor Sarah shared last Sunday the first half of Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at the second half of it this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of read through some of these sections, talk about them, and kind of work our way all the way through. The, the first question I have for you, just because I'm, I'm interested, when you're at church, and maybe the, this is just like you're on an undefeated string of a thousand straight church Sundays, and that's great. Maybe you haven't been in church in a long time. But what I'm interested in 
is when someone starts reading the Bible in church, what do you do? Uh, Because I started noticing more and more in myself, when I'm not up here, when I'm listening to a sermon, everyone's like, we're going to read the Bible now. I'm like, "Mm, shut off time. (laughs) I'm going to go off somewhere else. You wake me up when you're done reading it. Uh, Tell me what you think about it. And probably because I grew up in the church, hearing someone read the Bible out loud, as I'm always like, I don't know, if I wanted that, I could go read it myself. Uh, Tell me something more about it. And so I'm just interested for you, what happens when someone reads the Bible? Because that's what we're about to do. And just be able to process, is this a time I normally lean in and kind of pay more attention? Do I kind of doze off? Uh, It's all fine. I'm just interested. I'm just interested. Like, is this helpful? Should we keep doing this in church? I don't know. Let's figure it out, huh? All right, Ephesians 4, 17 to 20. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds. Let's pause there for a quick second. Uh, Remember, who is Paul writing this letter to? Gentiles. So he's writing it predominantly to non-Jewish followers of the way, or what we would call Christians. And he's kind of leading off with a sick burn on the people he's talking to, right? You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and abandoned themselves to licentiousness. I practiced that word four times this week. And I'm not, I am going to brag. I nailed it. Let's keep going. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. So, I, as we've been going through this, and we've been going through this, this whole message, part of the thing, and we did a message series at Cascade earlier on. If you're not familiar, Paul, who wrote, is believed to have written the majority of the New Testament, is kind of a, a lightning rod figure within Christianity. Some people love Paul, and some people hate Paul, and aren't really interested in a lot of who he is and what he says. And what I'm interested in, especially at Cascade in our church context, is if we hate a person who wrote a majority of the New Testament, there might be some wholesale problems with Christianity. And so I've been really interested in, like, let's go back into these sections. Let's go back into these things that Paul has written and really dig deeper. What was Paul all about? What was Paul trying to say? And what I've been encouraged in reading about Paul is I think because of the way Paul writes and the way that we've divided up the Bible and we just kind of quote grab little things and we're like, this is what Paul thinks about everything. When Paul we talked about even earlier in this message series, is responsible for a 202-word sentence and a 218-word sentence in the Bible. You can't quote grab Paul because Paul is the king of run-on sentences. He's building these amazing, weaving, complex things that you get to the end of, and you're like, okay, I fell asleep halfway through. One more time. Let's give it one more run on what Paul's trying to say. And I think a lot of what's happening is that when Paul's in the middle of building an argument, we say, oh, there it is. I get the idea of it. And I think a lot of that leads to misunderstandings of Paul. Now, this section is actually the one so far in Ephesians I've struggled with the most. And here's the reason why, as we look at it. 
I, I kind of want to break down this section. We, we can look at it one more time. When Paul's talking about Gentiles in this way, look at the identifiers. Futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, ignorance, hardness of heart, lost all sensitivity, abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is a dark way of describing, again, definition of Gentiles, everyone who's not Jewish. And as I read through it, if we give the non-charitable assumption, Paul is othering for the sake of perceived in-group superiority. Othering is a way of talking about other people that aren't in your in-group. It's not a group you identify with for the sake of making yourself feel or be positioned better. Um, if you want examples of this, just look at politics, like all of it, right? Anything you believe is the right and good and moral thing to believe, and anything not you believes is the wrong and depraved and greedy and awful thing to believe. And when we use this language and we continue, and it's important within a Christian conversation, when we use this kind of identifier and language, we're using that within the Christian theology against other people made in the image of God. It's one of the beautiful things about the Christian religion is that there is no in-group other than the entirety of humanity. Tracing back to the beginning of the story, if everyone comes from this Adam and Eve, if everyone comes from one place, the function of that story is to say there is no other within this community because we all come from one. And even language again and again that Paul uses in the, in the New Testament. Language like, in Christ there is no male or female or Jew or Greek. There is no Jew or Gentile. You don't get to create an other distinction anymore in Christ because everyone belongs. But the non-charitable assumption of what Paul just did is he created an other group and just bashed them unrelentingly. I'm not here to tell you that you need to take the charitable assumption of Paul. I encourage you to read and wrestle with the Bible and say, what is this thing? Because until we can get honest and until we can actually wrestle with 2,000 plus year old language and metaphors and ideas, we're not going to be able to apply it to our lives here today, how we're actually living and functioning. And so that's your work, our work. But I also, the thing that I struggled with as I came through this, because I frankly don't enjoy it at all, is the charitable assumption is that what Paul is, is seeking to do is he's creating a straw person argument of a category of people he doesn't even really believe exist to be able to demonstrate that there's a new way to live. And part of the reasons why we would give Paul this charitable assumption is there's no overstating how revolutionary the letter of Ephesians is full stop. That Paul is telling Gentiles, non-Jewish people, you're a part of this religious movement too. Now for you, you're like, yeah, you're recruiting people. You want everyone to be on your team. That's not how the Jewish folks in the first century were rolling. They were about greater levels of in-group purity and greater levels of exclusion. If you remember back to the Old Testament narrative, when did the Jews, the chosen people, get themselves into trouble? 
anytime they started to include and bring in other cultures and other people and other gods, their purity, the ability through which the blessings of God would come to them to travel to the rest of the world, is the way and manner with which they kept themselves removed and insular from everyone else. So Paul, who felt seriously enough about these religious convictions to go kill people that were threatening it, to now say, no, in Christ everyone's involved, it doesn't make sense for that person to say, everyone's involved except for them. They're definitely not involved. Kind of dark and shady, am I right? I, I don't know that that fits into what Paul's doing, not in other letters, although it's certainly true to say I don't believe he's doing that in other letters, even within this letter. So let's keep on reading to see what, where is Paul going with this? To what end is he creating this juxtaposition or this idea of, which I would say, even if you have a really uncharitable view of another segment of population, you probably wouldn't describe them the way that Paul just did. Continuing on in Ephesians 21, he says, For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, a couple of things that, that jump out in this. This section, there, there's two sections that, that we're going to look at this morning that really stuck with me. You know, like you had a tub of popcorn, and there's that one kernel on the backside of your tooth that you can't get out. That level of like, what is happening here? This line, for surely you heard about him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus. Paul's writing to Ephesus. Uh, I know it's America, and we probably shouldn't get all geographical, but stick with me for a second. Ephesus is not really anywhere near Nazareth and Jerusalem. It is in the greater scope of the world, but in how this ancient world functioned and moved, they weren't particularly close. So for people who were in Ephesus that were followers of the way or were followers of Jesus, they didn't have any first-hand experience of Jesus. They didn't grow up with him. They didn't know him. And what's interesting is what Paul is saying to this early church, people that have been there, have been talking about Jesus, he's saying, for surely you heard about him and were taught in him. Surely you've heard about Jesus and were taught about Jesus. But he doesn't say, because these people came and they told you about Jesus. What does Paul say? As truth is in Jesus. Clearly you knew about the truth because you were taught about the truth. And if you've learned about the truth, then you understand who Jesus is. That the very function and bedrock of Jesus as a person, his embodiment here on earth, is one of truth. And if you've experienced the truth, then you've experienced Jesus. That little line in sentence flips on its head what most of us have grown up with in the Western world, in the United States, evangelical Christianity about how you access truth or what it is. You have to go to Jesus, and only when you go to Jesus can you ever possibly understand the truth. But an interpretation of this is what Paul is saying is the inverse of that. Have you experienced love? Have you experienced beauty? Have you experienced truth? 
Yeah, yeah, then you've experienced who Jesus is. Early theologians have this beautiful line, all truth is God's truth. It's a way of existing in the world that when it comes to greater scientific exploration, it's not a bunch of Christians sitting on pins and needles going, oh, please don't disprove the Noah's Ark. It's going to make it all come apart. But rather, go for it. What can you discover in the universe that isn't going to speak of the majesty of who God is? What are you going to discover in further microbiology or in further ways of understanding the cellular and atomic level that isn't going to expose the nature of who God is? It's not like we have the corner on this really small and exclusive understanding of truth, and please don't disrupt it, but rather it's a big and expansive way of seeing and being in the world that says, bring on the truth, because it will only be greater ways of understanding who Christ is and how Christ works in the world. Do you see what it seems to be that Paul is doing in setting the table for the earliest Christians? you get invited to a non-anxious presence in this world. Why? Because what could threaten the truth of who Christ is? You don't have to be afraid. And this actually seems to jive with what Paul was actually doing. Paul walked into non-Christian, non-Jewish areas over and over and over again. And he told us, he gave us his playbook, I'm adopting their way of seeing and experiencing the world because by adopting their way of seeing and experience the world, I can help them understand the twist or the little way that we understand how Christ is already speaking into these realities. If Christ is speaking into all things, then we don't have to be afraid of ourselves. We don't have to be afraid of the world. We don't have to be afraid of anything. Open-hearted present and active human beings. Could this be the invitation of God? And could this be the invitation of Christ in the world? I want you to hold on to that nugget because we're going to come back to it. Ephesians 4, 25. So just to kind of give some context, Paul is talking to Gentiles, and, and it depends if you want to do charitable or non-charitable opinion of what Paul was doing. He was either blasting Gentiles or he was creating this arbitrary, not arbitrary, but kind of intentionally false setting to, to, to say that in Christ there is a change of action and behavior. We do reevaluate who we are. We do reevaluate the way that we show up in the world when we follow Christ. And he says that as followers of Christ, when you experience this truth, there's another way that we show up into the world. Now Paul is continuing to get more specific in this. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. I mean, trust me, we're coming back to that one. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. There's a lot to, to hit on here. I want to hit on a couple of things before we get to, to the section I think really requires kind of deeper sitting upon and considering. One, when it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, do not make room for the devil. Um, a lot of times when we hear devil, 
we think of like horns, pitchfork, blah, 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 right? Evil, bad. Um, what's interesting about the terms when we use Satan, devil, Lucifer, there's all these different terms that are used in Scripture. They mean different things and talk about other things. What I think is significant to pull out is anytime we have this term about devil, we're talking about accusations. And I would say uh, one of my favorite kind of stories to look through is if you've heard about the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's is setting his calling. And then when he comes back, he is tempted by Satan. And the three temptations are, one, hey, you got lots of power. You see this rock? Turn it into bread. And Jesus says, no, quotes scripture. He's a very good Christian. Secondly, he says, hey, you can do anything. So throw yourself off this building and call the angels to catch and save you before you hit the ground. Again, real scripture quoter. I'm sure he won all of his sword drills. He nails it again. Third one, it says, all you have to do is bow down to me and everything you see will be under your hand. You will be the ruler and king of it all. Third temptation. Usually how we read and interpret that is that Jesus is being tempted. It's this final test to see if he's really up to it, if he has the medal. What I think is interesting to look at is what are the temptations of Satan? The first temptation is basically to shortcut the process. Hey, Jesus, to get bread, what does that require? It requires relationship, community. Probably not that you grow the wheat and you can harvest the wheat and you can turn it into bread. You have all that capacity within yourself. Usually, and especially for Jesus, who comes from a family where his dad would have been a carpenter, you actually don't have that. So short-circuit relationship and just get the thing you need now without having to be in a dependent relationship with others. Short-circuit the process, and Jesus says no. The second temptation is that you know you have God, you have all this power on your side, you can call the angels down, so why don't you have a little fun with it? You have the power, so use it for your own benefit. And what does Jesus say? No. And what I think is significant about that is that there is nothing in the life of Jesus where Jesus ever uses the power he has for his own benefit. The power is there to be integrated into community and to serve and to be used with others. Okay? It's not that Jesus' demonstration of power never benefited him, but it wasn't the primary benefit. It was only a benefit as Jesus was in community with others. And the last one was, if you're really going to be the king of it all, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really the leader, then you don't have to go through this whole drawn-out process. Bend down to me and you can just be king of it now. Where Jesus knows that there's actually a road that involves suffering. There's pain and difficulty that is a part of being alive in this world, and that is ultimately what he walks through. So what is really the temptation of the devil? When we talk about here, don't let the sun go down because you're going to make room for the devil, that this voice of devil, this voice of Satan, is that there's another way of living where you don't actually have to go through it. You actually don't have to be in relationship with other people. You actually don't have to share power with others. You can just use it for yourself. You actually don't have to face suffering and hardship and betrayal. You can just have the things that you want now. And I think within this lens, we see 
this character that's used over and over in Scripture is a temptation that there's another easier, quicker, faster way of being in this world that doesn't require true relationship, that doesn't require sacrificial community, and doesn't require pain and hardship. The messiness of it all. The other thing that I want to draw is at the end there, I love that he's saying, thieves, give up stealing because it's wrong. We all watched the first part of Aladdin. We get it. No. Rather, let them labor and work honestly so they have something to share with those in great need. If you are a thief, you're stealing because you're in need. And yet the invitation is to be a part of the community, to be a part of the whole and to be integrated in the whole so that you are aware of the needs and where everyone else is. And what is also not being stated in here, but is clearly present, is that if you already work and you don't need to steal to survive, what should you be doing? You should be participating in the lives of others so that no one should even have to consider stealing or thieving. An integrated way of being in community with one another where we recognize the needs, not just shame people for having needs and shaming their behavior that comes out of those needs. Are you with me? You've driven around the city of Portland. I can't tell you how many people just ran on politics this last week that says Portland is wrecked and ruined. You see people living in tents. We need to stop it. I live up in Vancouver. More than half the candidates were saying, we're not, Van we're not Portland. We need to stop homelessness at all costs. Are you really willing to engage enough in the issue of people living outside to deal with that? Or do you just want them to not be visual anymore? You just want to not see it? Is that the issue? If you want to be in community with people, if you want to create a community, which is all Portland is, it's all Vancouver is, is a community, then shouldn't that lead to a more integrated way of living and seeing and talking about one another? That they share in reciprocity and relationship. And the reason why I say that relationship to actually get to know and to be and to partner with one another is that it is great to give money and resources at a distance, but it is not the call of Paul or the call of Christ. That's still, in many ways, a disattached way of making something go away rather than a relational link to see the peaceful thriving of all people. Okay, too many sermons I didn't know I was going to do, but I'm not, I'm not mad at it. I think it's fine. Be angry, but do not sin. Whew, I talked about those popcorn kernels. Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry. How many of you have ever heard this preached in church? Be angry, but do not sin. What I think is interesting, if we're, we're going to talk about anger this morning, we're going to talk about how anger functions, it's important for us to locate anger within our societal moment, our cultural moment. Where are we and what is our relationship to anger? So I want to talk about two things, toxic masculinity and patriarchy. Uh, toxic masculinity, let's, let's define our terms. Toxic masculinity is that there is a way of being 
uh, individual who presents as male in this world that comes with a certain list of expectations and rules into how you're supposed to operate and be, right? Um, go watch football this afternoon. You'll get it. Uh, and not even just the football, just the commercials that they attach to football are really interesting on what it looks like and to be a man. I worked at a church that did a men's event, and it was a study in the cultural impact of toxic masculinity. Here's what we did. We wanted men to come to an event. So we cooked meat. We did barbecue, and we had bacon. Because if you're a vegetarian male, get lost. You don't really belong. Two, we did poker, man's game, right? We're not playing bridge. This is poker. That's what it means to be a man. And then, because we couldn't have beer, we had a keg of root beer, wink, wink, and then we handed out steins that you could fill to the brim with your root beer and toast and clash and say, yay! And then, up on the screen, they had done a cut of the war scenes of all of these movies, like Braveheart and Saving Private Ryan, and not like the plot building, just like the battle scenes, and those were just playing on a loop on a screen. Because if you're a man, what do you love? Killing other men. And it's just a part of us. These are symptoms of a culture that has a toxic relationship to masculinity. And it's not to say, one of the things that was most troubling about this event wasn't all those things. Trust me, it was troubling. But what it was saying is that if you're a woman and enjoy any of these activities, you're probably wrong. You're probably too masculine. You shouldn't enjoy poker. You shouldn't enjoy root beer. And you shouldn't enjoy war movies. Because this is a men's event. Go to the women's event where we read captivating and do knitting or something like that. I don't know. There's all these very specific identities that are linked to what it means to be a man. And patriarchy is the overarching idea that men are best served in charge and leadership of families, households, businesses, governments, and structures. Okay. We currently live, while in our current moment, certainly within Portland, Oregon, but in the United States, we are condemning in certain pockets of the country these issues of toxic masculinity and patriarchy, but we have not yet upset the teeter-totter of life and, and events in our country that says a toxic relationship to masculinity is best and men should be in charge. And if you're like, I don't know that that's true, I don't think you're in this room, but let's say you thought that, just Google senators. Just look at those pictures. You'll get it. So, be angry, but do not sin. What this communicates within a toxic masculinity and patriarchy, those things put together, is that anger is a demonstration of power and passion for men. Anger is actually one of the few emotions that men can show publicly. Anger is actually good. We need anger. We need someone being upset, slamming a podium, and talking forcefully. Again, if you've been to a church, you've seen it. And if you're a woman in a culture of toxic masculinity and patriarchy, it's an unacceptable loss of control and a loss of submission if you're a woman. You've lost control of yourself and you have no longer submitted to the rightful leadership of men. 
So why are we not teaching be angry but do not sin? It's a real loaded conversation, isn't it? I think there's lots of reasons why we're not teaching it and talking about it. Because the assumption is only that one gender can even be demonstrating it. And at that point, we're not even terribly interested in the do not sin part. So, I didn't think it was particularly helpful for just me, a white male, to have this whole conversation. So I invited my friend, fellow member of the teaching team, Harriet Congdon, to come up and share a little bit. Um, as we have talked about this in the past, Harriet, what your own relationship has been and what your experience has been of anger, that's fine, both as, it looks like it's supposed to be there from this end. You got it? Okay. Uh, your experience of anger, just as a woman in society, and specifically anger in the church and how it's viewed and responded to. So um, this is a particularly hot topic for me. <laughs> um, anger, it, for me, personality-wise, is a, um, one of my major go-to emotions in response to situations. And so I had to do a lot of unpacking personally and confronting it for myself, especially as um, we began our family having kids, and you realize, oh, my gosh, I am so angry at these kids. And I can do a lot of damage, and I did not want to do that. So I had to, I had to do some learning uh, and finding out that anger as a word itself is a, a, a real a huge, um, it's a catch-all word <laughs> that can mean a lot of things, a whole range of emotions from the really extreme violent anger that plays out in behavior as well as the very inward, like, frustration or, you know, some that people might view as a little milder forms of anger, but it's all anger in, in, in that. And so over the years, I had to, first of all, learn to accept anger as a valid emotion or response. It is something that I feel, and to dismiss it or stuff it is not helpful either. And also to realize there are appropriate places to express anger, that there are places that it's okay to do that, and other places that wisdom says, no, not right now, let's exercise some self-control. So um, I, I'm still kind of learning that, <laughs> but my experiences as a woman, especially as I went through an MDiv program, wanting to be in full-time ministry in a church, at that time, believe women were, you know, uh, subordinate to men in the church. They had the power. That was what the Bible said. Well, that started changing <laughs> through seminary and then some experiences in which uh, I began to see that I had some abilities, gifts, uh, strengths that were could be helpful in the church, but I was a woman. And so I, I had some pretty horrendous experiences and, um, and it's, it's, I just noticed in the passage there, it says, you know, speak truth to one another. Um, yeah, uh, speak the truth to our neighbors, for we're members of each other. And then comes us be angry, right? And I realized anger is a both sides thing. I, and so I would experience anger um, when I saw something wrong happening, something that I thought, no, that's not right. You know, you're treating women, especially women, <laughs> Uh, as I saw women being demeaned from the pulpit or being treated differently from men. And it was, it was I guess, people would call it righteous anger. 
And there was this uh, situation where I had to do a little more unpacking because I knew, wisdom told me, that if they got a whiff of anger, because every time I did it before, I was, not, I was called hostile. Not just angry, but hostile because I challenged the status quo, challenged the power of those men that were there over me. Um, and so I realized by unpacking it in this one situation, I, I, I recognized deep grief, just grieving. I was grieving, and, and, some, and, and that was part, uh, that was attached to this anger that I had. But I decided to lean into the grieving part as I, I chose then to talk to them trying to navigate that as wisely as I could and, and present them as, this, I'm grieving here. And that was helpful to recognize that part of my anger because they seemed to uh, respond better, <laughs> at least to hear me better and to listen. But often, uh, if I uh, express any kind of critique, and most of the time, because I loved the church, I was there to help... Um, make things, I mean, to make it better. I wanted it to be better. That's part of who I am. I'm a fixer. I'm a, I like to make things run smoothly. Or to, and I can also see policies or, or actions, and I can somewhat see what's going to happen down the road or how people can respond, and I want to avoid the problems. But it was taken as a threat as a woman. Uh, so threat to power was one source of, of uh, things as they reacted to my anger. But they also had anger, too, against me. <laughs> and I had to deal with, what do I do with men who get angry at me and realize that's their problem, not mine. <laughs> and that took a long time to get to that point, too. Um, the other major thing for me, I realized, even when I got to a church that had women elders, I got to this egalitarian church, <clears throat> I realized there's another level of anger towards women that was there because... Um, Personality-wise, I'm not a—I'm not the first Peter three woman, <laughs> where it says that um, beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now it's taken out of context. It's talking about wise in a very specific context, but they have taken that in the church <laughs> as a woman. You hear this, and and it's extrapolated to all women were to have a gentle and quiet spirit, and um, and so that was laid on me. Um, as an expectation, and any kind of challenge was taken as hostile. I was often called hostile, often called insubordinate, and because um, uh, I, uh, m my attempts to want to make things better was taken as a threat to their power, and so yeah. So that was those were. Uh, I realized that e even in an egalitarian church, there can be only a certain kind of woman that can be in leadership positions. They have, they have, you have to look a certain way. And so that, that was a new experience. Anyway, I don't yeah. know if there's anything else. No, that's perfect. And I think it's a helpful illustration there that we can be in systems that have changed our mind about a particular way of being. But until we address the huge flow of information and experience and realities that have happened before that, it's not enough just to change your mind. You actually have to respond to all of the expectations you've created in that. So at, at Cascade, we're an egalitarian church. My co-pastor is a female. 
currently a majority of our board members are female. But we don't say, see, so you can't call us sexist, but rather saying that's just one step that we're trying to take into understanding and uncovering this deep history within church and in our culture of creating oppressive environments for people without power in our country, women, certainly members of the LGBTQ community, and also uh, racial and ethnic minorities all throughout our country. So it's not enough just to say, see, we have better policies, but how do you back those up? How do you support those? And how do you let anger, talking more about that, expose the flaws, expose the ways where it operates too short so we can do better and best by everyone? Would you thank Harriet for being willing to come up and share? All right. Here's, here's one of the things that I loved that Harriet shared is anger can be this catch-all emotion, right? We call lots and lots of things anger, or lots of things can kind of bring up anger or share it with us and how it kind of functions in our lives. The reason why I think there's a command here to be angry is because anger ties us into our passion and to our identity as members of one another, members of a core and a collective. One of the ways that anger gets triggered in all of its different ways is when our will is being blocked, right? And so it's important for us not to say that every time my anger gets triggered, it's righteous anger and we should act on it. But rather, maybe it is true that every time my anger is triggered, I need to sit with it longer to say, what does this teach me about myself? And what does this teach me about the God who is behind all things? In many, many cases, when we either just act out of anger without thinking about it, or we repress or deny our anger, we're no closer to understanding more of who we are created in God's image or understanding who God is. At Cascade, we have a teaching team. And one of the things that, that I found to be true and I tell people is like the best things you should preach out of are things that make you really angry or really excited. Indifference, I'm not really interested in. But if you're like, I hate that passage, I don't want to talk about it. Ooh, there's something good there. Because there's something about the nature of who you are or who God is that's present there. It is good and necessary to pay attention to your anger. What makes you mad? Because it's quite possible that in there, the image of God is being denied in our corporate structures, in our worlds, in our communities, and in our societies. And if we never tune into that, if we never plug into that, then we have no way of working against what is just the eventual flow of oppression and marginalization. The whole name of this message series is Liberation or Oppression. It's actually kind of a frame I would put on a lot of Paul's writings. How you inter interpret Paul and how you use the words of Paul in the church and in the world today is probably tied into what you think Paul is doing. If Paul is looking to take control of this church, then his words work really good for control. If you believe that Paul is bringing to liberation to people that have been excluded and marginalized, then these are incredible words of liberation. And I think the flow of Scripture leads us there. I want to close with the last section here, Ephesians 4, 29-32. Let no evil talk come from your mouth, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with the seal for the day of redemption. 
I want to talk about that for a second. The grieving the Holy Spirit isn't some mystery sin that you can do that God's going to be mad at you forever. But rather, is there a way of being in this world where you forget who you are? Do you deny the image of God placed in you through certain actions, behaviors, ways of being in this world? I'm a parent of an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. And one of the main things my boys know about me is nothing bothers me more than self-defeating talk. When they say I'm bad at something, that really, really bothers me. Because it's not true. It's not true. My boys are amazing and smart and capable the way that your children are smart and amazing and capable because I've yet to meet a non-amazing and capable student or child, or person in this world. And I think it grieves the heart of God and the spirit of God when we live in ways that deny that, that we live in ways that say, I don't belong. I don't have something to offer. I don't have something to contribute to the way that we all see and be in the world. Not as a mean of shaming and condemning, but as a way of speaking the truth of who you actually are into the world. It grieves the heart of God because there's a truth there that needs to be uncovered, that you are worthy, that you do have value and merit, and we need you in this world. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You're probably more familiar with these words, and they're good words. How do we be kind and loving? How do we build one another up, not tear each other down? But not as a teaching and a means of control. Too often I've heard these verses spoken to people without power in systems, and we've ignored, be angry but do not sin. Instead, we see these are linked together in the way that Paul links everything together because he can't have a coherent, small, tiny, pithy thought. It's all together. Be angry and let your anger deliver you into kind words and lifting up and building up others. May we see that we all belong and contribute. Would you pray with me? God, this morning, I pray that we would see ourselves We would see the people in this building, God. We would see the people just outside of this building in this neighborhood, that God, we would see the people in the city and the state through your eyes. God, this inclusive and radical love where everyone belongs. God, may we not be frightened of anger and others are our own anger, but God, may we get curious about what is behind it. And God, may we learn more about you and your heart. God, may we get more touch with what grieves the Holy Spirit of God, which isn't doing the wrong thing. But rather, it's about believing that, of course, we did the wrong thing. God, may we see ourselves in your image, and God, may we speak and share that into the lives of others, leading in such a way where we see that we are connected to you and connected to one another. God, may we participate in the mutual thriving of all people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.